From Proud Boys to Jailbirds, the lead starts right now. The rioter who smashed in that Capitol window, another who helped organize the violent attack, knew quite lengthy prison sentences for members of the so-called Proud Boys as we begin to see the U.S. justice system come down on those who played leadership roles in trying to overturn the 2020 election. Plus, two years has gone by and where are we? To be frank, we're knee deep in bullshit. A demand for answers from grieving parents. 13 U.S. service members were killed in that chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Gold Star families this week were asking their leaders pointed questions. Today, we're going to try to begin to start to get some answers. But first, the judge's decision expected in any moment that could change the trajectory of the Fulton County case and the 19 defendants charged, including Donald Trump. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin with our law and justice lead. At any moment, a U.S. district judge could decide if former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows will face trial in Georgia or in federal court. Meadows argues that his case belongs in federal court because, as Trump's right-hand man at the White House at the time, he says his actions were thus part of official government duties. Meadows specifically faces charges for participating in Trump's infamous phone call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where Trump asked the Republican official to, quote, find enough votes for him to flip the state from Biden to Trump. A Fulton County judge yesterday ruled that cameras will be allowed in his courtroom in this sprawling election subversion case. So if Meadows does end up in federal court, he'll avoid the television cameras. He'll avoid playing a starring role alongside his former boss, Mr. Trump, in what is likely to become the most watched trial of all time. As for some of Trump's other co-defendants in this case, four more of them pleaded not guilty today. That brings the total to 10 out of 19. Some are struggling to pull together funds for these mounting legal bills. At least four have turned to crowdfunding. One has a political action committee. Another has an ally in Congress to support the legal defense What they do not have is any apparent sign that Donald Trump intends to help any of them. Mr. Trump told Newsmax he doesn't even know a lot of them. Here with me, CNN's Jessica Schneider and Tom Dupree, former principal deputy assistant attorney general in the George W. Bush administration. Thanks for being with us to both of you. Uh, Jessica, let me start with you. When do we expect this U.S. district judge to, to decide where Mark Meadows will ultimately have to face trial? It could come at any time, Jake, but we're expecting that it will likely come before Wednesday because that's the date of the arraignment. Mark Meadows still hasn't entered a plea here, so he needs to do so if it were to stay in state court by Wednesday. But the judge just got this extra briefing late yesterday afternoon. It amounted to about 35 pages. And the issue here that the judge really seems to be focusing on is whether maybe one of these acts uh, and the multiple acts that were listed in the indictment, if even one of those acts touched on Mark Meadows role as a federal officer, does that then mean it should be removed? Of course, Mark Meadows' team is saying yes, absolutely. Even if one of those acts even remotely touched on his duties, it should be moved to federal court. Bonnie Willis's team, as expected, is pushing back in their briefs, saying no, this indictment was about the broad conspiracy, not just one single act. So it needs to be, you know, multiple acts here that would require the removal. So we'll see what this judge could rule in the coming days, likely, I would think, by Wednesday. Tom, if Meadows' case is ultimately moved to federal court, 
How would that impact this sprawling case being brought by District Attorney Fannie Willis against 19 defendants? I think it would have the likely effect of breaking things up. Uh, From my perspective, I think it's unlikely that even if Meadows is allowed to defend himself in federal court, that all 19 defendants' cases would move like a magnet to federal court with him. I think a likelier scenario would be that the federal court might take jurisdiction over several of the defendants, maybe even including former President Trump. But I think it would be a little much to move every single case pending in Georgia state court into federal court. The other thing is you've got timing issues. It looks like some of these defendants in state court are eager for a fast trial. The district attorney seems eager to accommodate them. So that could be another factor. We could see some state court cases moving ahead very quickly. If there are federal court cases, they would probably move on a slightly slower timetable. And Jessica, bring us up to speed on Wisconsin's Kenneth Chesbro, one of Trump's co-defendants. He's alleged to have been the architect of this fake electors scheme. He is asking and able to get a a speedy trial, so that's going to start in October. So what's next for him? Yeah, we've actually seen this flurry of filings from his team. So first of all, he's asking for the prosecutors to speed up their production of discovery here. Basically, prosecutors have told his team that they won't be getting all of the documents to them by September 15th, even though Chesbro's team has already handed them a hard drive for these documents. Chesbro's team is saying, wait a second here. Why are we supposed to wait two more weeks when this trial is scheduled to start on October 23rd? So they're saying, wait, prosecution, you can't have it both ways. You can't ask for this speedy trial or agree to it and then not give us the documents. And then secondly, just a a few hours ago, actually, Chesbro also filed a motion to not have to have his case tried solo. He does not want to go to trial alongside Sidney Powell, who has also asked for a speedy trial. Chesbro's team is basically saying that Chesbro had no communication ever with Sidney Powell, that they're not accused of the same thing. So they really want to separate themselves in particular from Sidney Powell here. And Tom, uh, Mr. Trump yesterday formally asked a judge to sever his case from his co-defendants who want a speedy trial like Powell and Chesbro. Uh, Trump's lawyer arguing he will not have sufficient time to prepare his defense for trial by October 23rd, two short months away, uh, pretty much. Uh, it's reasonable to think a judge might agree with that, right? I do. I I think that is reasonable. Uh, I mean, even if you weren't the former president preparing for a trial of this complexity in two months, I think would be a difficult task. So I think the former president would actually be on fairly strong ground asking that whatever his trial date is set, it's set maybe sometime next year rather than in October with the other folks. All right, Jessica Schneider and Tom Dupree, thanks to both of you. Here to discuss, Mark Short. He served as chief of staff to former Vice President Mike Pence. So first, good to see you. Thanks. How you doing, Mark? Um, So this is the first time I've talked to you uh, since uh, Trump turned himself into Fulton County Jail. Um, You worked for Pence specifically, but previously you were Trump's director of legislative affairs. And I just want to get your response as a human being for a second, if it's okay. When you look at the the mugshot of Donald Trump, the former president, you've seen it now. I'm pointing it to you, but you you don't need to see it, I guess. What is it like to see your former boss, a guy you work for, a guy whose who's, uh, legislation and policies you try to enact it? So you had to have believed in, in him, at least to some degree, in terms of his policies and oh, such. Sure. What, what, what is it like to see that photo? Oh, sure. I think, I think it's sad. I think it's tragic, Jake. I think that I'm very proud of the four years of record. And I think that uh, the president was great to me. He was great to my family. Uh, so I don't think there's any celebration in seeing it. I do think that the events of January 6th were tragic and certainly avoidable. And I think that the president got a lot of bad counsel, in many cases counsel he sought out, that I think led him astray 
And I think that the ultimately asking the vice president to sort of put aside the Constitution is a huge violation of your most important oath to the American people to protect and defend the Constitution. I know, um, you know, this town gets caught up in politics a lot, understandably so. It's important. Policies are important, too. Um, but, you know, we all are humans. When you talk to other people who worked in the Trump White House, uh, not those who are charged with crimes, but, but, but people like you, people who try to do the right thing, like the vice president, et cetera, what, what are you hearing from them about, about this, the mugshot and, and everything? I think that in, in some cases it's probably a little bit surreal for a lot of people. You need to have a little bit of distance from it. But I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's obviously a, a lot of us who felt that the, uh, the events of that day were tragic and that what the president was asking the vice president to do was antithetical to his oath. I think there's a lot of others, though, Jake, who, who feel that, um, that uh, they still want to defend, obviously, the president and moving forward with his candidacy in 2024. I think they want this to, to go away. Um, a Fulton County ju- judge ruled that all proceedings in the courtroom will be on camera. Now, we don't know if ultimately Donald Trump's going to be in federal court or, or, or the Georgia court. Yeah. But assuming he's in Georgia and his, can the case is televised, I mean, he is a former reality TV star. Um, do you think him being in a televised trial helps him or, or hurts him, theoretically? Well, I mean, I don't know. I think there's a lot that's been counterintuitive. I think that you've seen with each indictment that, uh, in many cases, Republican voters rally back around the president. So I, I, it's hard to know, but I do think there's a difference. I think that when you're in that environment, you can't control the narrative. You can't control the setting as much. So I can't imagine that it's a positive or that it'd be beneficial politically to him. Yeah. Um, another person with a mugshot now, uh, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, uh, he is arguing, and we were just covering, uh, the idea that like his actions involved uh, in trying to overturn the election, uh, in Georgia specifically, uh, were related to his job as White House Chief of Staff, and therefore uh, it should be a federal case, not a Georgia case. What do, you, what do you make of just that claim, that this was him doing his job as a federal employee? Well, again, I, I've, I'm very sympathetic that I believe he probably was acting at the president's behest. And, and I think you can make the argument that that is part of his role as chief of staff. But as I've said, Jake, I think what undercuts that argument is if you're in your federal role, then how come none of the White House counsel is there with you helping to advocate for that case? It's clear that White House counsel was giving very different advice. And so Mark went outside and found independent counsel that he could partner with on this endeavor to try to overturn the results in Georgia. And I think that 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 obviously argues against that this was part of your federal role because you clearly weren't relying upon the people who were giving you counsel inside the White House. You went outside the White House to get independent counsel to try to advocate uh, some way that uh, that something could come out different in Georgia. Yeah, the White House counsel and deputy counsel were, were, and other advisors were very clearly opposed to all of this. Correct. That's right. Um, What do you think will happen to the case if the judge sides with Meadows and, and kicks the case to federal court? I, I, I'm not a lawyer, so it's, it's hard for me to know that. But, but you're a smart but I, guy. But I, look, I, I think that uh, it's interesting that in the, the federal indictments, that, that considering Mark's central role in this, that he was not included. So I think there's probably reason to believe that he's been cooperating with the prosecution in that case. So On the federal level. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if it gets moved in, in venue as to, as to what sort of uh, cooperation there is in, that, in those two cases. Why do you think that would be? Because you, you, you have noted that Mark was in many ways the ringleader, that's your word, uh, of a lot of these attempts to subvert the election, to overturn the election in various states, et cetera, not just Georgia, and that Mark Meadows' name does not appear in the federal indictment, uh, not as a co-conspirator, not as a co-defendant. Right. Um, not, I mean, not, not, his name is not there. Right. 
So you've hypothesized that he must be right. cooperating to a degree, which is a reasonable s- suspicion. Why would he cooperate with that one, but not with the Georgia case? I mean, is there any reason? Because I, 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 I can't understand that. Well, again, maybe, maybe the perception is that if you get it moved into federal court, then you can get cooperation to help remove the state charges. So uh, that would be, that would be my, my best guess, Jay. Um, let's discuss Special Counsel Jack Smith's federal investigation that we we're just talking about. You, you, um, given that Smith says that he can conduct this trial in four to six weeks, mm-hmm. do you think others have, have struck deals before this goes to trial? I would imagine that that's the case. Uh, certainly, I would have imagine. You heard of, have I have you not. Heard? No, I have not. But it, it would seem to me that it's, it's a pretty uh, monumental case. And so uh, uh, perhaps the prosecution can go at that speed, but that would seem to be pretty quick when you're trying to form a president of the United States. And what do you make of the fact that Donald Trump um, and his PACs, his, his political action committee and others, are, are not helping the Georgia defendants, even though they are helping uh, some of the others that have been charged on a federal level? Well, I think, candidly, there's been a lot of fundraising that's gone just to pledge that for people to give money, that there's this legal defense fund that's helping a broad number of people who I think haven't gotten assistance. And so uh, I think there's, there's even questions of to the extent to which they've been fundraising off of this. Has it really been a legitimate fundraising clause or has the money basically been diverted for other purposes? Yeah. All right, Mike, Mark Short, always good to have, uh, have you here. Hope you have a nice, relaxing uh, Labor Day weekend. Same to you, Jake. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, the conversations happening among Senate Republicans now faced with questions about the health and the vigor of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. What is his future going forward? And Labor Day weekend, one of the busiest holiday travel stretches of the year, the trouble spots, expecting congestion, a.k.a. delays for you. But first, that urgent manhunt just outside Philadelphia for that extremely dangerous killer, what authorities said just moments ago about the inmate on the run. In our politics lead, quote, Mitch McConnell needs to step aside. That is from the editors of the longtime conservative magazine, The National Review. They're calling on the Republican Senate minority leader to step aside. McConnell appearing to freeze during news conferences in late July. And again, on Wednesday, that behavior uh, causing even more speculation and questions about whether or not he should serve and can serve as the top Republican leader in the U.S. Senate. The topic will no doubt come up as McConnell meets with his Republican colleagues on Capitol Hill next week. Many of them have questions. CNN's Melanie Zanona is on Capitol Hill for us. Melanie, how are Senate Republicans responding to McConnell's latest, latest health scare? Obviously beyond the compassion and the sympathy that, that we all feel what else? Right, of course. Well, publicly, most Republicans and even some Democrats are saying they are not worried about Mitch McConnell's ability to continue leading his conference. But privately, there is a lot of frustration and concern about the lack of transparency with his health and what is really going on here. And I can tell you, Jake, there are growing doubts inside the GOP right now about whether Mitch McConnell will continue to serve as GOP leader beyond 2024. That's when his current term as Republican leader is set to expire. So all of this likely to come to the spotlight next week when the Senate returns from the recess. Mitch McConnell presumably will have a press conference next week in front of reporters. We've seen him freeze up now in two incidents in the past month uh, in front of press press conferences. So that's going to be something to watch. And then he's also going to face his members in their weekly conference meeting. And we're also hearing that there is some chatter among rank and file members about forcing a special conference meeting to specifically discuss his leadership. It would only take 
five Republicans to call for such a meeting, but there is not a mechanism to easily force him or force him out of his position. So more likely to be a frustration and venting session next week, but something we are certainly keeping an eye on, Jake. And there are at least three Senate Republicans, they're informally called the Three Johns, who, who could potentially replace McConnell. Yeah, so there's long been speculation about who would succeed McConnell whenever he does step aside. And they all happen to be named John, the three Johns, as you note. There's John Barrasso of Wyoming, John Cornyn of Texas, and John Thune of South Dakota, all in and around leadership, all close to McConnell. All have differing approaches to former President Donald Trump, I also might add, which could come into play in a race for leader. But it is going to be a dogfight. There's no clear front runner. And Mitch McConnell has been in that role since 2007. He is the longest serving party leader of either party in Senate history. So it will just be a seismic shift inside the GOP whenever Mitch McConnell does decide to step aside, Jake. Barrasso, the the Trumpiest of the three. Is that fair to say? Okay. Melanie's a no-no on Capitol Hill for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the new prison sentences uh, rolling in for members of the so-called Proud Boys after their violent attack uh, on police officers and others at the U.S. Capitol, plus the origins of this far-right group and others on the radar of the FBI. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. International leader Pennsylvania felon who murdered his ex-girlfriend in front of her kids remains on the loose. This is after he escaped the Chester County prison outside Philadelphia just before 9 a.m. on Thursday. As this urgent manhunt continues this afternoon, Pennsylvania State Police offered a $10,000 reward for any information that could lead to Danilo Cavalcante's capture. CNN's Danny Friedman is outside the prison in Chester County. Uh, Danny, the, the police also shared their thoughts on whether or not people might be assisting the fugitive. That's right, Jake. That's just part of the new information that we learned in the past few hours from a press conference from local law enforcement officials. First is that police believe there's no evidence at this point to suggest that anyone is helping this escaped inmate at this time. The second thing that we also learned from this press conference is the district attorney believes that escapee Danilo Cavalcante is still in this general area. The DA saying we believe he's hiding somewhere locally and is still alone. And the third thing we learned, Jake, is that there's reason to believe 
that this suspect is heading south. And the stem of that belief really comes back to why Cavalcante was in this prison behind me. Remember, Cavalcante was convicted just two weeks ago of brutally murdering his girlfriend back in 2021. He was just sentenced to life in prison without parole last week. Well, prosecutors said after that murder in 2021, Cavalcante tried to flee down to Brazil, his home country, but he didn't get that far. Uh, law enforcement officers picked him up in Virginia, and that's why law enforcement officials today believe he may be trying to head south again. But the U.S. Marshals, Jake, they are not deterred. Take a listen to what one representative had to say at this press conference. We have no reason to believe Mr. Cavalcanti's left the area. However, if he does, the U.S. Marshal Service has a long arm to touch anyone in this country or its territories, and we plan to do so. We will stop at nothing until we bring him back into custody and support our state and local partners. Jake, law enforcement officials urging people in Chester County to be extra vigilant, especially during this holiday weekend, saying to check your sheds, check surrounding areas. But if you do come in contact with this escaped prisoner, just call 911. Don't try yourself to communicate with him. Jake? I'm not, I wouldn't check my shed if I lived in Chester County. Danny, describe the area around the prison. <laughs> How easy would it be for someone to hide there? Well, to that point, Jake, it really is a diverse terrain in the area around the prison. I'm looking this way behind the camera. You can see basically a lot of almost forest-like area here. But if you go a few minutes down this road uh, to my left here, Jake, there are a lot of cornfields. So it is a diverse area out here in Chester County, clearly part of the challenge that law enforcement officials are facing as they search for this escaped inmate. All right, Danny Freeman on the case there in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Thanks so much. Now in our law and justice lead, Remember this guy, the one who smashed a window to the Capitol building with a police riot shield he had grabbed? That guy was just sentenced to 10 years in prison by a Trump-appointed federal judge. Dominic Pizzola is a member of the so-called Proud Boys, and he will join fellow Proud, Proud Boy Ethan Nordine, who may be sentenced at any moment. Unlike Pizzola, Nordine was considered a leader of the Proud Boys, but did not actually enter the Capitol. CNN's Evan Perez is with us. Right now, Evan, so far sentences have been significantly lower than what Justice Department prosecutors had asked for, but still pretty high. They're pretty, they're pretty harsh sentences, Jake. Uh, look, the Justice Department uh, asked for 20 years for uh, Pizzola, uh, who was sentenced earlier today. He got 10. Uh, this was, you know, listening to some of these sentencings has been really instructive in what a tragedy January 6th was for everyone, including some of the people who are accused of entering the, the, the building, helping carry out some of the crimes. You've seen, obviously, the, the pictures of Pazola uh, breaking the window there, uh, leading what, what the judge said he was the tip of the spear for people who went into that building. Um, but the other thing that you hear, certainly right now, as we're listening, as we're watching Nordine uh, being sentenced as we speak uh, at the federal court in Washington here, uh, you, you hear from their families. You hear from them apologizing tearfully because they realize what's about to happen to them. Uh, the, pr the prosecutors have been asking for very hefty sentences, in some cases for, for the leaders of the Proud Boys, uh, Joseph Biggs uh, and for Zachary Real. 
they were asking for more than 30 years. In the case of Biggs, they got 17 years. Zachary Real got 15 years. Uh, these are very, very hefty sentences. They're going to basically have their daughters grow up without their fathers being there. Uh, but the judge, one of the things that he just mentioned uh, in court was that what happened on January 6th and the violence that happened that day was more than just that. There, there was something that was lost for all Americans, which was the tradition, the long-held tradition of a peaceful transfer of power, which we've lost. And we will have to build the next time there's an election and next time there is a transfer of power. So one of the things we're watching for right now is Nordin. He took over the leadership of the Proud Boys uh, after Enrique Tarrio was arrested right before January 6th. Enrique Tarrio, by the way, is facing his own sentencing uh, next week. So he's going to be the fifth of the Proud Boys uh, that are that are facing the sentencing in uh, this federal court, again, by Judge Timothy Kelly. Judge. Yeah, the, and, and Enrique Tarrio, that, that the former national chairman of the so-called Proud Boys, right. um, that's, uh, that sentencing is, is next week. What are we expecting at that hearing? Well, we're expecting, uh, you know, the, again, for the Justice Department to, 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 to emphasize what happened on January 6th and what these men did. Now, Enrique Tarrio, was arrested before January 6th, and so he was banned from being inside, the wa inside Washington on that day. So he wasn't there. But he had stolen a Black Lives Matter He had flag. stolen a Black Lives Matter, and they were watching him, and they yeah. certainly knew that he, he had uh, some weaponry on him. And so they knew what he was up to and what they were, they were trying to prevent what happened on January 6th, obviously, and thought by arresting him, he could send a message. In the end, Nordine took over, and egged on the crowd, especially uh, told them uh, what they should do that day, carry out that day, the violence that happened. Of course, uh, that was one of the things that the prosecutors are going to emphasize at the Enrique Tarrio uh, sentencing, which is that for months, these men were at the forefront of political violence around the country, a lot of it at the egging of the former president. And so obviously, this is also the courthouse where Donald Trump himself is going to perhaps face some consequences for what he inspired on January 6th. He's going to go on trial there uh, in the coming months, Jake. All right, Evan Pettis, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. John, uh, let's revisit the four Proud Boys who have been sentenced. We still don't know the sentence for Nordine, but we can make an educated guess that these four are going to add up to around, around 50 years. It's 17 years for Biggs, 15 for uh, Zachary Real. Uh, Nordine has yet to be sentenced. Uh, Pizzola got 10. Um, we should note that three of the four uh, were convicted and then sentenced on a very difficult to prove seditious conspiracy charge. We talked about this when they were charged. There were a lot of people that speculated they would not be able to get con uh, convictions on those because those are, those are tough to prove. What do you make of it all? Well, I think it's a very hard charge to prove. It's why prosecutors use it so seldom, um, but it is also an effect of the idea that Regular American citizens are only rarely in the habit of trying to do something you could equate with trying to overthrow the government. The last time they used this seditious conspiracy charge successfully was in 1995 against the so-called blind sheikh, um, Omar Abdel Rahman, who was um, charged in a conspiracy to blow up U.S. government buildings and landmarks um, on behalf of bin Laden and al-Qaeda. So, yeah, it's a big step to use that against Americans. But when you have a case where you're actually charging that there is a conspiracy to invade the Capitol and literally interrupt the process of democracy to wit the counting of electoral college votes, the certification, rather, of votes for uh, the president, 
That's about as close as you're going to get to seditious conspiracy in a modern age. Two years before the deadly insurrection, Trump's Justice Department identified white supremacists and far-right extremists as the most significant domestic terrorist threat facing the U.S. at that time, more so than al-Qaeda or ISIS. Um, is this far-right still considered the biggest, you know, the far-right activists and militia groups and the, and the right, the violent folks, are they still considered the biggest threat to the U.S. right now? I would say that my last year or two, even, depending on where you set your watch, uh, with the New York City Police Department assessing terrorist threats against the United States and specifically this city, uh, would validate that theory because, yes, it is important to note, and we cannot for a moment look away, uh, understanding that ISIS and al-Qaeda and Hezbollah um, are still uh, groups that have aspirations to strike on U.S. soil. Uh, we can't look away from that. On the other hand, if you, comp if you compare the body count, um, if you look at the Buffalo supermarket shooting, if you look at the Allen, Texas mall shooting, one by a white supremacist, the next by a neo-Nazi, uh, or the El Paso shooting uh, targeting migrants, you're seeing more people are being killed by people who are following this uh, extreme right-wing ideology than by al-Qaeda or ISIS combined, at least on U.S. soil. Yeah. John Miller, food for thought. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Serious question now. What's up with all these new COVID cases that you're probably hearing about? Why this latest wave might be worse than some people think. Stay with us. Our money lead now. The hot weather, high gas prices, and crowded airports are not expected to deter millions of Americans from traveling this Labor Day weekend. The Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, expects nearly 50,000 flights just today. Just today, 50,000. CNN's Pete Muntean has more on the holiday weekend that will cap off one of the busiest summer travel periods on record. It is a climactic end to a record-breaking summer of travel, with a new survey saying more than half of all Americans expect to travel for Labor Day. At Chicago O'Hare, officials are bracing for a 7% increase in passengers compared to the holiday weekend last year. The TSA says after this weekend, this summer will set a new air travel record with more than 227 million people screened at airports since Memorial Day. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says flight cancellations are going down, but the latest numbers from FlightAware show it is delays that have increased. This summer, more than 25% of flights arrived late by an average of 57 minutes. This year we have seen significant improvement. That doesn't mean that the system was immune from some tough travel days this year and this summer. AAA says even still, travelers remain undaunted, booking 4% more domestic trips compared to last Labor Day weekend and 44% more international trips, with destinations like Vancouver, Rome, and London topping the list. You are seeing flights and trips over to Europe and down to Latin America booming right now with numbers that are significantly higher than what we saw pre-pandemic. The crowds also stretch to the roads. AAA forecasts that popular routes like Palm Springs to San Diego and the Jersey Shore to Manhattan will hit peak congestion on Monday. Before this weekend, the average price for a gallon of regular gas flirted with a seasonal record set back in 2012. Like everything else, it just keeps going up, and that's why I'm meeting my family halfway. I would have driven all the way down to Baltimore and back. We knew they were going to go up. We knew it, so we filled up before we left Jersey. 
The TSA says today will be the busiest day for air travel of the holiday weekend, but it is only the start. The agency anticipates screening 14 million people at airports across the country through Wednesday. Jake. All right, Pete Muntean at Reagan National Airport right outside D.C. Thanks so much. This busy travel weekend may be colliding with another COVID wave. Yes, you heard me right. Don't shoot the messenger. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is estimating that COVID hospital admissions jumped nearly 19% the week ending August 19th compared to the previous week. And you may have seen this headline on CNN.com today. This wave is probably worse than official data suggests, it says. Let's bring in CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, testing is nowhere like it was before. So how, how do we really know that we're in a COVID wave, given the fact that I, I can't even tell you the last time I got tested? Yeah, it, it's, it's challenging. I mean, some of this is anecdotal. A lot of people know somebody who has had COVID recently or may have had it themselves. So the, you're just hearing that more often. But to your point, it's, it's hard to validate because we're not doing as much testing. A lot of the testing that is happening is at home, not being reported. So it makes it challenging. One of the things that you and I've talked about for a couple of years now is looking at more reliable metrics such as hospitalizations. You just mentioned it, but let's take a look there. If you look at where the hospitalizations are over the past several months now and compare it to this point last year, the very far right is where we are. So it's much lower, it, you know, half of where it was around this time last year, but it's ticking up. So there's a trend up. It's not a surge per se, but it's trending up. Another uh, indicator, wastewater. So this is basically looking at wastewater all over the country and trying to figure out how much COVID, how much virus is actually in that wastewater. And this goes back to earlier in the spring, Jake, it was higher then, but now it's higher than it has been in several months. It's not directly correlating with new cases or new hospitalizations yet, but you're seeing a, a tick up there as well. So th this is the early warning system, Jake. I mean, I think we gotta pay attention to it. I, I wouldn't call it a surge, but the numbers that we do have are, are heading in a direction of up. Do we know anything about who's being hospitalized? If they're seniors, if they're, they're middle-aged people, yeah. kids, do we have any idea? Yeah, about 15,000 new hospitalizations and some of those same sort of uh, you know, risks, the high risk sort of criteria apply. So they do tend to be older and they tend to be people who have uh, uh, immunocompromised, who have weakened immune systems for various reasons. You know, it, it, it's interesting, that has sort of been the trend all along where you see these high risk populations, but you know, you gotta keep an eye on other people who might be at risk as well. So it's a big travel weekend, obviously. Uh, some kids are back in school, others are about to go back to school. What is the CDC guidance uh, on masks, on sickness, on what to do if you are infected? What does it look like right now, the guidance? Well, right now, if you look at the country as a whole, and they, they have these, again, the data that we do have with all the caveats I just gave, if you look at the map of the country, it looks pretty green, which is good in this case. There are a few areas where you're gonna have more hospitalizations, which is the, the primary metric that they're using to determine whether they would recommend masks and stuff. So we're not at that point yet. Um, but I gotta tell you, Jake, you know, I, I recently visited my parents. I tested myself before I went down there. I wore a mask on the way down there. They're older. They're the ones who are the high risk that we were just talking about. And if I did test positive or someone tests positive to your second part of your question, it's five days of isolation. That's when you're likely to be the most infectious, starting the day after you develop symptoms, five days after that, and then, and then um, you can test after that to make sure that you're not still infectious. A new COVID booster is supposed to come out later this month. President Biden's yeah. been talking about it, I guess, to 
update yeah. for the, the latest strain? Who, who should get it? You know, it's it's. I, I put this grid together to look at all the vaccines, but I'll tell you, it's it's. Uh, we'll see who they recommend it for. But September twelfth is when that advisory meeting is going to happen, and I my guess is it's going to be people who are going to be uh, particularly high risk are going to be the first in line to get this. If you've recently had a shot or you've recently had COVID, probably for four months or so after that, you don't really need to get uh, uh, updated immunity. But that, that's, that's sort of probably how it's going to fall a, a line there, what, what I'm showing you on the screen. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta with the latest. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the dangerous storm lashing one of the largest economy, economic cities in the world. Plus, Republican presidential contender Viveka Ramaswamy, how his bold, some would say shameless style, is bringing on new pushback from his fellow Republican contenders. Back with our world lead now, an estimated 4 million Ukrainian children went back to school today, according to UNICEF. Some kids were sent to school with two backpacks, one for school supplies, the other containing food and water and other supplies for a bomb shelter, should it be needed. A Ukrainian mom of two tells CNN that her kids are going back to their Kiev school in person to attempt some semblance of normalcy, but... They're in the minority. UNICEF says about two-thirds of students are going to study online or hybrid. Meanwhile, the fight on the front lines grinds on. CNN's Christiana Mampour sat down with Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, today. He insists Ukraine is making substantial gains on the battlefield. Listen. If, if Ukraine was failing, I would probably be the first one to, to speak the truth. But we are not failing. We are moving forward. We, we liberated thousands of square kilometers of our land through minefields with no air coverage. How does it feel when you come back from your mission and you take back your phone, you open it, and you start reading all these smart people saying how slow, how slow you are and that you are, not, you are not doing well enough. You just lost two of your bodies. You were almost killed. You crawled one kilometer on your belly demining the field, you sacrificed yourself, you took the damn Russian trench in a fierce fight, and then you read someone saying, oh guys, you are too slow. It's not just the United States currently experiencing unusually violent weather. Hong Kong and other parts of southern China got walloped by Typhoon Seola today. Uh, Alerted as a T10, the highest typhoon threat level, equivalent to a Category 4 hurricane. Seola weakened to a Category 2 as it approached Hong Kong. Still, the city of more than 7 million people saw trees uprooted and windows blown out. Coming up next, a Republican 2024 presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, a candidate of many seeming contradictions despite his doublespeak and rivals calling him out. See, the support this candidate is still getting on the campaign trail. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Gold Star families still demanding answers about what happened at Abbey Gate, where 13 U.S. service members were killed during that chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Is it so hard 
to get answers from the president and top military leaders. The runaround that Gold Star families have gotten for two straight years as they demand answers, so is CNN. A mother who lost her son in the attack is here with reaction to our look into two important questions. Plus, the contentious vote set for next week for the Women's Tennis Association, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, with its troubled record on human rights abuses, to say nothing of women's rights. Saudi Arabia is making a play to host the finals. And leading this hour, 2024 candidate Vivek Ramaswamy stirring controversy as he tries to position himself as part of a new generation of the Republican Party. He has made some contradictions when it comes to policies. He has suggested some wild conspiracy theories about not only January 6th, but September 11th. Ramaswamy nonetheless is gaining support among voters, and with that support comes the scrutiny of the spotlight. The 38-year-old represents a generational shift for the grand old party. Despite the controversy that seems to follow him around, he is now at the center of Republican politics. And as Kyung La reports, the so-called candidate of the new right says he is here to stay. I started at not zero percent, but zero point zero percent in March. Hey, everyone. How are you? From obscurity to caucus curiosity. We fight for the truth. We stand up for the truth. That is what won us the American Revolution. That is what will win us the revolution of 2024. Standing before a sign with one word, truth, Vivek Ramaswamy, 38-year-old former biotech exec and first-time candidate, is hitting multiple corners of Iowa. (laughs) Seeking to capitalize on a political moment. Nice to meet you. Yeah, good to see you. Fueled by a Trump-like populism. (laughs) It's pretty good. I think what we have a lot of in this country are a lot of conspiracy realists. Uh, and so it's on one of them. That some supporters prefer to the Republican frontrunner. Do you think he can beat Trump? Yes, without a doubt. I, I, we're tired of losing. Trump lost. It doesn't seem to make sense. Hmm. How are you going to beat Trump when you have a Trump base and he is running? I think the way I'm going to do it is by speaking in an uninhibited way. I think I am the only candidate in this race at this point is speaking my mind truly without running it through preordained filters. That's proving to be a competitive advantage. You know, it does draw some backlash at times, but I think that's what people in this country are hungry for. Ramaswamy brushes off criticism that he plays loose with the truth, even on the debate stage. In your book, you had much different things to say about Donald Trump than you're saying here tonight. That's not true. But it is true. In his 2022 book, Ramaswamy did praise parts of Trump's record while also offering sharp criticism of how Trump handled his 2020 election defeat. We might as well embrace it. That is our last best chance. Ramaswamy takes Trump's style even further on the issues pledging to fire 75% of federal workers, eliminate all affirmative action in America, and use U.S. drones to attack Mexican drug cartels, all while bucking the very party whose nomination he wants. Using the Republican Party as a vehicle for advancing an America First agenda. Your fellow Republicans have no, called fellow, you. I, mean, I, I just want to stop for one second. I kind of cringe when someone says fellow Republicans. I'm not a party man. But this is still a caucus system. Yes, absolutely. A party system. Well, I think many people who will be caucusing in the Republican Party are like me, people who are disgusted with the establishment. So you don't need the party structure? I don't need the party structure. No, we need we need the patriots who represent the people of this country. That's what we need. And the Russia-China military alliance. But the more some Iowans hear from Ramaswamy, the more you hear questions about his foreign policy ideas. Just do the math in your head. 
like giving parts of eastern Ukraine to Russia. See, I was the one that asked the question about Ukraine. I think he's wrong about the Ukraine. And whether this Ramaswamy moment is just that, a moment. He's the new flavor of the month. I mean, we've seen this in previous presidential races, too. Someone catches on for a little bit, then they fade. So some of the words that have been used to describe you, political performance artist, absurd excuse for a presidential candidate, obnoxious, annoying, conspiratorial, little regard to truth, ideology, or the practicalities of American government. How do you respond to people who say, this guy is an opportunist, he's an interloper? Hmm. You know, I mean, I guess I'm never going to debunk somebody else's preconceived notion, and nor am I going to try to. My job in this race is to tell everybody who I am and what I stand for. After that jam-packed Iowa schedule, he is already heading to New Hampshire. He has a schedule there that includes 11 different locations, and he plans on doing that over the Labor Day weekend. It is a grueling schedule, just like it was here in Iowa. He's going to come from New Hampshire home and then come right back here to Iowa. What Ramaswamy tells us is when it comes to field strategy, ground game, and energy, Jake, he is in it to matter. Jake? Yeah, it's a grueling, a grueling schedule, but maybe not so much if you're only 38 years old. It doesn't, 38, you could, anybody could do that, but, but not, not to take away from what he's doing. I'm just saying he's young. You come La, thank you so much. Here with me now to talk about this all, former Obama State Department official, Anir Haq, Republican strategist, Shermichael Singleton, and Semaphore's uh, Benji uh, Sarlin. Uh, Shermichael, as the Republican at the table, let me ask you what, what do you, what do you make of this guy? Is he the new face of the Republican Party? Oh, absolutely not, Jake. I mean, remember, Rick Perry once upon a time was leading for a couple of weeks. Uh, Dr. Ben Carson, whose campaign I was an advisor for, we led for about 60 or 90 days. This is a part of the process where you see these flash-in-a-pan candidates with some very unique ideas. They excite the base, if you will, during debates. But when you look at some of the polling data, Morning Consult released a poll in particular after the GOP debate that showcased Ramaswamy's unfavorabilities actually increased the only among one, likely GOP voters. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's exciting during the debate. But when I look at Iowa, New Hampshire, and the state polling, I don't see a clear path for, for Ramaswamy, nor do I see voters moving to his corner. And a lot of a lot of his Republican opponents, just because you're a former State Department official, I want to I want to get uh, your view on this. A lot of Republicans look at his foreign policy ideas, uh, Ramaswamy's, as as really Putin friendly. Uh, to be clear, he wants to uh, let's look at the thing. He wants to cede territory taken by Russia and its war in Ukraine. He wants to end U.S. security assistance to Ukraine. He wants to block Ukraine's candidacy to NATO if Russia ends its military relationship with China. And he wants to end U.S. Uh, sanctions on uh, Russia. What, what do you make of it all? Oh, you know who else wants to do all those Putin-friendly policies? The front-runner of the Republican primary, Donald Trump. So in that way, Ramaswamy is very much aligning himself with Trump foreign policy. There was a moment on the stage where Nikki Haley uh, went at it with Vivek about the fact that uh, he's pro-Putin, what he's saying is going to destroy democracy in Europe, and that he has no foreign policy experience, and neither did Donald Trump. Right, and it certainly didn't hurt him in getting elected. Foreign policy is not one of the top issues that people vote on. Economic advancement, health care, those are issues actually that are very much aligned with the Indian American community uh, and the Asian American community writ large, which with its voting population right now, on the margins can make differences in states like Georgia and North Carolina. President Trump has made inroads with Asian Americans. The right wing has made inroads with this community. This is part of why we saw Asian American uh, standard bearer 
against affirmative action. That was part of this is part of the movement is bringing Asian Americans that idea of entrepreneurship uh, into the Republican Party fold. And it's something that is concerning to Democrats, because traditionally the coalition of people of color has voted Democrat. Yeah, just to be clear for folks out there, Asian American, you're talking about India and Pakistan as well, not just uh, mm-hmm. not just uh, China and other countries in that part. Um, Benji, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I've been around for a little while, so I remember every presidential debate, especially at this point when it's like a full field, mm-hmm. there's usually like one person that you can tell all the other candidates hate. Uh, I remember I, it was John Edwards at one point. They all just kind of thought he was a phony. There was a period in 08, not 12, but 08 where it was Mitt Romney. Clearly Mitt Romney. Uh, but, but not 12. 12, they liked him. Um, uh, and he, he had changed also. It's clearly Vivek Ramaswamy in, in this incarnation. It is the, the, the loathing that you can feel so many of them have for him, it, it's almost palpable. Yeah, and of course you can tell yourself a story where at the debate, well, of course, strategically, it makes sense to go after the person who's rising in the polls and hasn't been scrutinized as much. But I do think it goes deeper than that. For one thing, every single person on stage with him is either a current or former governor or a longtime senator like Tim Scott. These are people who do take governing seriously. They do not like the idea of being lectured by some 38-year-old who says they have a simple answer to everything. Um, but I also think there's an interesting thing here, which is everyone's internalized the idea you can't really attack Trump, right? Even some of his people who clearly do loathe him and disagree with him are reluctant to do it in this primary. But you are allowed to attack Vivek Ramaswamy for saying a lot of the same things. Right. And I think you're seeing a lot of Republicans kind of enjoying this moment. I think it's therapeutic for some of them to be like, all right, well, we're allowed to attack this guy at least and, and you know, unleashing the full guns. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think that, I mean, that, that does seem to ring true what, what Benji just said, because... I hear Nikki Haley attacking Vivek Ramaswamy for, for, as you noted, positions that Donald Trump has espoused for much longer. Yeah, but Jake, he's not Donald Trump. Right, exactly. Donald Trump is leading right now, what, 58, almost 60%. I mean, after the first debate, his favorability has actually increased for Republicans thinking that he actually has a legitimate opportunity of beating the sitting president. Now, I will say to, to Vivek's credit, a CNN poll came out August 5th, or August 4th, I believe, that showcased 55% of Americans do not want Congress to authorize additional funding for Ukraine. Sure, it's and, not and out of the mainstream. It's, it's, it's not. And so yeah. Vivek is clearly tapping into something, Jacob, people that are looking at inflation, looking at the rising cost of gas and, and other personal, more direct issues and saying, well, why are we sending $100 billion here and not addressing some of the issues at home? And so in that regard, I think he's found a lane. But the question is, that's still Trump's lane. And are those voters going to join him or merely applaud him, pat him on the back, but still stick with Donald well, Trump? Somebody, that's what I think they'll do. Somebody on that stage needs to be you know, the vice presidential candidate as well, right? <laughs> not every, exactly. Not everybody on that stage, especially not Vice President Pence, is going to be running for that position. That is especially given the, the connections, bringing in um, you know, minority voters and representation, that narrative. And, and Trump so far seems to like what Vivek has to say. I just want to bring you one little news update. This just into CNN. Rudy Giuliani has officially pleaded not guilty in the Georgia election subversion case. No surprise. Oof, that, that mugshot's uh, quite, quite, a, quite an image. Uh, but no surprise. Uh, but uh, in any case, that's just the latest news. Let's change the subject for one second because uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, and I know we all are sending him our best uh, and have, he has our sympathies, as does his family. Uh, but he had another serious seeming health moment where he froze up on stage. Uh, and now the National Review put out an editorial saying that he needs to step aside. They say, quote, prudence and realism have been hallmarks of his leadership and now are called for in considering his own uh, future. Here is what the editor of National Review told CNN this morning. 
These incidents are not normal, and even if it's just lightheadedness, he's clearly visibly aged since his bad fall back in March, and we just think it behooves him, for his sake and for the sake of his colleagues, to go out on his own terms. What do you think? Well, it's pretty shocking given the source here. You know, Rich Lowry there is an editor at National Review. We've talked a lot about how conservatism has changed in the Trump era. We're seeing it in the debates. National Review is as closely associated with what you might call McConnellism as any media outlet on the planet. That is the beating heart of it. That, that is their ideal version of Republican leadership, I'd say. So for them to come out and say it is pretty serious. Um, one thing I would mention here is that there's a big subtext of this, which is that they are all trying to attack Biden on his age in 2024. And you're already seeing some Republicans explicitly say this, jettisoning McConnell might make that easier. It, it's, it's harder to make that attack that, you know, having an 82-year-old president is a bad idea when you have an 81-year-old the legislative leader who's in failing health and visibly so. Well, the Thanks. average age of Congress is uh, 67. It's, you know, it's an argument that hits back on majority yeah. of the folks yeah. sitting Th- there right now. Thanks one and all for being here. Really appreciate it. Have a great Labor Day weekend. From private conversations to an all-out public feud, Coming up, new CNN reporting on the frustration between President Biden and New York City's Democratic Mayor Eric Adams. Plus, the statement just in from the Pentagon after CNN followed the lead of some Gold Star families and pushed for some specific answers to questions about that deadly bombing at Abbey Gate that killed 13 U.S. service members in Afghanistan two years ago. Stay with us. Really interesting story now in our politics lead, a new CNN reporting about a very public fight between two of the most high-profile Democrats in the country, President Joe Biden and the Democratic mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. The fight is about the migrant crisis and the federal response, or lack thereof, and it's getting ugly. First, a little background. For months, states such as Texas have been sending migrants and asylum speakers Two cities far from the U.S.-Mexican border, including New York City. They have, these migrants have flooded shelters. They have slept on the streets. Uh, the, cities have, uh, set up tent, the city has set up tent cities to house them and process their requests. Now, in New York, Mayor Adams regularly complains about the lack of federal help for this crisis. We're saying we must expedite work visas. It's just common sense. We need the national government to stand up. This is not a New York City issue. This is a national issue, and it must be resolved by the national issue. So don't critique what we've done. Don't tell us how we could have done it better. Don't sit in the bleachers and be a detached spectator on this full contact sport call asylum seekers. Get on the field and fight this battle with us. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez and Isaac DeVere worked together to bring us this new uh, reporting. Isaac, let me start with you. Some fiery words there. He probably speaks, I have to say, for a lot of Democratic mayors and governors who just don't want to be that aggressive when it comes to the Biden administration. But what, what, what are you hearing about this very tough criticism from Adams? The, the words are, are really intense. And uh, one, one person close to the mayor said to me, the White House has made the conscious decision that it's better politics to let New York suffer than to actually fix the problem. And I will tell you, Jake, in speaking with people, what they said that was not on the record, that was uh, not even on background like this, uh, much rougher, some of it. Uh, and both from the Biden side and the Adams side, Granted, much more from the Adams side, uh, but really tough, tough feelings about where they are feeling like they're just completely at odds with each other. And obviously, this isn't a fight that he necessarily wants to have. This doesn't help Eric Adams uh, necessarily. But And what, is he, what does he want that he says President Biden and the administration are not giving him? Well, you heard it there. He wants expedited work permits. So 
Current immigration law states what the work permit process is. Asylum seekers can work legally as they go through their immigration court hearings, but they have to wait at least 180 days to get that. So in that interim period, they need shelter, they need access to services. And we should also note, Jake, that the people that we are seeing coming now don't necessarily have ties to the U.S. like we used to see with other immigration populations. So they come here not knowing anyone or really having any sense of direction. And so that is what's causing strain on the New York City system. Now, of course, when you talk to White House officials, they're concerned about this because they're fighting with a high-profile Democrat who is publicly very critical of them. But what they're also saying is, we can only do so much without Congress. We can give you the federal funds, but the rest of what you're asking for is likely going to face legal challenges, and we can't expedite the work permits without some other really important executive actions. And Isaac, you learned about a never-before reported moment from October. Tell us about that. Well, look, remember the, the relationship between Biden and Adams uh, started in such a strong way. When Adams won the primary to be mayor of New York, Biden invited him to the White House. He sort of put him forward as this great new face of moderate, pragmatic Democrats. Uh, very quickly that uh, devolved. But before uh, that, uh, Joe Biden invited uh, Adams at one point. They were riding together in New York in the limo, uh, and he gave him half of his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Then in October of last year, Adams is sitting in Ron Klain's office, White House Chief Staff's office, with Julie Chavez Rodriguez, now the Biden campaign manager, and said to the two of them and some other White House aides, there is no leadership here. And the kinds of things that he started to say in private have now bubbled up in public, but it is a really... Uh, part of this breakdown uh, from the uh, bottom all the way up. Biden and Adams haven't talked for the better part of a year, is what we understand. Bottom line, though, I mean, this frustration is real and it's based on real problems. I mean, yes, Congress needs to do more, but doesn't the Biden administration, couldn't they also do more? Well, that's the ask. And we should know, Jake, we're talking about New York City, but there's other Democratic-led cities who are dealing with this. Denver, Denver Sacramento, <laughs> yeah. Washington, D.C. So this is a real issue for the administration as they also, by the way, see more numbers at the U.S.-Mexico border. This isn't going away. The White House is having to deal with it day in, day out. Great reporting, Priscilla and Isaac. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Have a great Labor Day weekend to both of you. Last month marked two years, two years since that deadly, horrific bombing at Kabul's Abbey Gate, a deadly bombing that killed 13 U.S. service members during the withdrawal from Afghanistan and more than 170 Afghans. But why? What happened? Did U.S. intelligence suspect that anything was coming? More than two years later, in fact, just minutes ago, Gold Star families got a new response after CNN pressed for answers. And we'll bring that story to you next. In our national lead, emotional pleas this week for help, for information, and, and very simply for the truth. These pleas come from people who deserve everyone's respect and compassion, families who lost sons and daughters and spouses, in the terrorist suicide bombing at Abbey Gate in the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. This happened on August 26, 2021, roughly two years ago, and you may remember it killed the suicide bombing uh, 11 U.S. Marines, one Navy corpsman, and one soldier, along with more than 170 Afghan civilians. 45 U.S. service members, furthermore, were wounded in the attack, some of them grievously. It was the deadliest day for U.S. troops in Afghanistan in roughly a decade, and it came during the frenzied, chaotic U.S. withdrawal as service members were working to evacuate civilians and others at the airport. This week, many of those Gold Star families brought some pointed questions to Washington, D.C., and we wanted to try to help them get some answers. Two years has gone by, and where are we? To be frank, we're knee-deep in bullshit. 
An emotional hearing on Capitol Hill with testimony from Gold Star families of the 13 service members killed in the Abbey Gate bombing in Kabul two years ago. There was understandable anger. I identify as a father, a husband, a pissed off, fed up American patriot, and now thanks to this administration, a Gold Star dad. And passion. I want to know why this current administration isn't able to take responsibility for their actions in the days the weeks and the months leading up to this fatal, fateful day. Gold Star families still desperately seeking answers about what happened to their loved ones on that day. Our people, our armed services request for air support. Multiple, multiple military personnel saying this is not a good idea. Our snipers asking for permission to engage. Every one of them ignored. These are red flags. Why were they ignored? Some of the families pointing to previous testimony given by another Marine who was on the same mission. Marine Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, who said he and other Marines believe they saw a man who fit the description of the suicide bomber, but had been denied permission to engage him. We asked him for engagement authority and permission. We asked him if we could shoot. Our battalion commander said, and I quote, plain and simple, we were ignored. Our expertise was disregarded. No one was held accountable for our safety. How much did the Marines know about the pending attacker? A review of witness testimonies from a Pentagon investigation reveals conflicting recollections. One saying, quote, all of the Marines on the ground were aware of the threat and what to look for, a man dressed in black with a shaved head. Another saying, occasionally Marines would say a guy is matching the description and look suspicious. You would go look at the guy and think, maybe... A third saying, quote, it's possible we saw him, but we don't have a solid description of who he was. It's all speculation. Marine Tristan Hirsch also told his local newspaper, quote, we knew about him two days prior to the attack. We knew what he looked like. The CIA let us know. He looked exactly as they described him. CNN could not get in touch with Hirsch. How solid was the U.S. intelligence? CNN sought to get some of those answers this week. Marine Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews has testified that Marine snipers at Abbey Gate spotted someone who they said match the description of, the sui- of a suicide bomber, but were denied permission from their superiors to engage the threat. Do you know why? It was a, uh, uh, a very challenging situation. Military commanders on the ground in Afghanistan made the best decisions and provided their best military advice based on what was known at the time. Another looming question, whether U.S. intelligence knew of an ISIS-K cell staging ground at a nearby hotel. But either was not given permission to strike them or ask the Taliban to do so, and they did not. ISIS-K later claimed responsibility for the attack on Abbey Gate. You're telling me that we couldn't have precision dropped on those ISIS-K members? This was all actionable intel that we sat on. Nothing was done. Why? A new book by one of the Republican committee staffers on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, journalist Jerry Dunleavy, notes that in two different Pentagon reports, U.S. intelligence wanted to strike the hotel, but, quote, determined it was infeasible due to the negative response from the Taliban. Another says General Chris Donahue also asked the Taliban to conduct an assault on the hotel where ISIS-K was staged, but the Taliban never did. General Frank McKenzie denied these claims at a Senate Armed Service hearing in September 2021. General McKenzie, is it true that U.S. forces had the ISIS-K cell uh, under surveillance prior to August 26 and could have struck them before the deadly terrorist attacks at Kabul, but were not given the authority to strike? No, that's not true. This week, CNN followed up. It was said military officials were denied permission two days before the Abbey Gate attack 
to conduct an airstrike against an ISIS-K cell in Afghanistan. To your knowledge, is that true, and why were they denied if so? At the tactical level, uh, the assessment was that the Abbey Gate attack was not preventable without degrading the mission to maximize the number of evacuees and that the leaders on the ground followed proper measures and procedures. Shortly before the hearing with Gold Star families, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, put out a statement saying in part, quote, We owe Gold Star families everything. We owe them transparency. We owe them honesty. We owe them accountability. We owe them the truth about what happened to their loved ones. They are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters that were pawns in some agenda. And we deserve some information and collaboration from all political parties. Now, for the last couple of days, we've been reaching out to the Biden administration to get reaction and for a guest, anyone who would be willing to answer some of the questions uh, that we posed in this piece on camera. Uh, they declined, but minutes ago, the Pentagon did give us an extensive statement, too long to read the whole thing right now. We will put it all on CNN.com. But here's the bottom line, according to the statement on, on whether snipers could have taken out the suspected bomber, the Pentagon says on the record, quote, we did not have intelligence that identified an individual by description or otherwise of the bomber. The preponderance of the intelligence indicated a complex attack like a car bomb. The statement goes on to say, quote, furthermore, descriptions of the bomber depicted in media included in this recently released book, do not match the actual description of the bomber. So it's possible that if a sniper had taken the shot on this individual, whom he claims was the bomber, he very well could have been killing an innocent person. But according to the rules of engagement, any service member can use lethal force if they determine there is a threat to themselves or coalition forces, unquote. On the second question we raised here, the allegation that there was an airstrike denied on a specific ISIS-K staging ground at a hotel not far from uh, the airport. The Pentagon statement says, quote, according to the commanders in Kabul, there were not any vetted strike targets denied. We just never had that precise intelligence. It is accurate that we did ask the Taliban to raid or search several areas. They searched some and did not search others, unquote. We will continue to press for answers on these questions. Let us turn now to Alicia Lopez, her son, U.S. Marine Corps Corporal Hunter Lopez, uh, is among the 13 service members uh, who were killed in the bombing. First of all, uh, Ms. Lopez, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, tell us uh, about your son. What, what, what do you want our viewers to know about him? Um, thank you, for, first of all, for having me, Jake. I appreciate your time in, in telling our children's story. Um, my son, as well as the other 12, are nothing short but heroes. Um, they went out there and uh, did their job and did their job knowing that there was a intimate danger and they still continued to try to get as many people out of Afghanistan as, as much as they could. The, the Pentagon statement about these two questions that we raised that were brought up in the hearing uh, earlier this week um, uh, among Gold Star families, the Pentagon statement seemed to suggest uh, that there was not any actionable intelligence when it came to the suicide bomber uh, in order for a sniper to, to get him, to take him out before the bombing, and uh, that there was not any vetted intelligence that would have merited uh, an airstrike on that hotel. Uh, so that's their basic answer. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that and if you heard anything uh, new in, in what the Pentagon sent us today. Um. 
I this is the first I hear that the Pentagon even responded. Um, but yeah, it just happened. I agree as, with you. I, it just happened minutes ago. We'll put the whole statement on. But you're right. They have never more this directly addressed these two questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, if their statement that they released today is anything like the DOD report that we received at our homes, um, it's short of accurate information. Um, they failed to speak with people that were there, um, important people like Sergeant Tyler Vargas, who had uh, his the bomber in his sights and they did not speak with him. There were several Marines that were injured that were not spoken to. So um, their, their statements that they release is is short of incomplete and not correct and it's been two years and so i i don't really believe them you and your husband attended the roundtable that uh, congressman michael mccall uh the chairman of the house foreign relations committee held last month Uh, what answers were you looking for there and have you gotten any answers at all since then um sadly we have not received any answers um we have requested uh, true accountability and validation of the stories that the Marines that were injured and that were there um, have told us. Um, we've requested numerous times to have my son's property returned to us. Uh, that again has been ignored and they have not turned that or given that to us. Um, just accurate statements of where my child was at the time of the bombing, um, where he took his last breath, um, all that. We have no information on any of that. I want to play something that your husband said during the August roundtable. We find ourselves reading sanitized letters from the White House on this anniversary of this tragic day. Letters seemingly authored to appease Gold Star families with an overall tone of indifference to not only Gold Star families, but to all the veterans who fought in Afghanistan and all who were injured during these two decades of war. It sounds like you feel as though, or your husband feels as though, the, the Biden administration would rather just forget all about Afghanistan and, and the pain uh, caused by what happened during the withdrawal. Uh, absolutely. We we have requested numerous times to speak with somebody from the White House, the president, anybody that was there and that made the decisions that they made. Um, however, none of them have responded to our invitation. Um, we, again, we sit with with reports that they came to our house and, and said that this was a true and accurate state, uh, investigation of what happened and it's false. It's false short from the actual truth. Alicia Lopez, thank you so much. May Hunter's memory be a blessing. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the controversial vote next week for the Women's Tennis Association that could put one of its major tournaments in a place where women are not exactly respected, Saudi Arabia. In our sports lead, as tennis fans pack the stands during the first week of the U.S. Open in New York, there appear to be some rumblings happening behind the scenes over reports of the Women's Tennis Association contemplating, flirting with, the idea of partnering with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, a country where women obviously do not have the same 
rights as men, to say the least. And a country whose questionable human rights record is practically being glazed over through what is called sports washing. Lucrative cash-grabbing deals being the shiny object thrown at famous athletes and sports organizations from around the world to make the kingdom of Saudi Arabia seem more palatable. Now the WTA may decide to have its season-ending final in Saudi Arabia. Joining me is former professional tennis player Patrick McEnroe. Patrick, is there any possibility that this potential move is not about the money? Well, I think it all is about the money, Jake. And it's interesting how this has all come about because this started because the WTA championships were being originally being played in China. And then in 2020, of course, the pandemic hit. And then what happened after that, you know, the WTA made the moral decision not to go back to China because of the situation with the tennis player Peng Shui, who, as you may remember, accused a high ranking official in the Communist Party of sexual assault. So that started this stance a couple of years ago. So what's happened since, Jake, is that the women's uh, tour finals have gone to various countries, even here in the U.S., in Mexico. It's on the table now. One of the places it could go is Saudi Arabia. But I've just been told by a source very close to the decision-making process that that is not going to happen this year. But it's still on the table for potentially happening next year and in years down the road. So the quick answer to your question is, of course, Jake, it's always about the money. And as you noted, we saw the WTA in April walk back its stance against holding any tournaments in China. Um, and of course, then, you know, they, first they took this moral stance and then they, then they didn't. Here are images of uh, star Chinese uh, player Peng Shui, who, as you noted, accused a top Chinese official of sexual assault. Um, I guess the, the biggest question I have is how do the individual players feel um, because, you know, Saudi Arabia is a country where, I mean, just to say the least, you know, women, just the right to walk down the street dressed like a woman's tennis player in the United States would want to walk is non-existent. Well, I think let, let's take a step back for a second here, Jake, because I think the Women's Tennis Association has been at the forefront of many, many positive things. Right, fact, of course. celebrating yeah, 50 years of equal prize money at the U.S. Open being celebrated this year and, and, and honored would of course was, of course, Billie Jean King. Michelle Obama was there as well on opening night. Uh, but I also find it a little disconcerting that all of us in the media and, and those of us in the sports world as well take shots at athletes, professional athletes, individual players, as you rightly point out, for participating in a sport um, that they're paid to do, uh, whereas you know, are, the U.S. government is still very much involved with Saudi Arabia. Sure. Uh, I have many friends, as I'm sure you do, Jake, in the financial world, who they always say, well, the money's in that part of the world. We need to go there to raise money. So I do find it a little bit off-putting, I guess is the way I would describe it, that we're always picking on the athletes for doing this. Yes, it's about the money. I think the individual players understand the dilemma that they face. But at the end of the day, it's their professional uh, reputation. It's their it's what they do for a living. And I don't see anybody in the business community not going to the certain countries in the Middle East because this. they're going there and chasing the money. It's just that we're not talking about it on television. So that's a totally fair uh, criticism. I will note that we are pretty vicious when it comes to the way that Biden, Trump, Obama and on and on have acquiesced and bowed down sometimes literally, uh, before the rulers of Saudi Arabia. 
uh, and we've, we're pretty critical uh, of the Live Golf Tournament as well. I, and then let me make just one other note, which is about what the WTA and all that they've done. I, I guess that, that's why it's so disappointing, um, because they have fought for something for so much uh, to yeah. elevate women and girls, not just in tennis, but in society. Uh, and that's why this um, stings a little for those of us who are fans. I, I think that's very valid. And I think, uh, by the way, I wasn't taking a shot at you. At oh, all, I know, Jake. I know, I know. Um, well, yeah, no, but, and Martina Navratilova, Chris Everett have spoken out against uh, the WTA going there. And you know what? Maybe they won't go there. I personally don't think they should go there. That's just me personally. But when you've got other sporting uh, organizations going there and other people going there for business reasons, uh, it, it's it, to me, it's a little tough to take a shot at the WTA. They've, they've, they've got to deal with the reality, the pragmatism of, of the business they're trying to run. And the other interesting twist to this, Jake, when you think that sports and politics don't mix, one of the other venues that they're talking to is in the Czech Republic. And there's some rumblings that the Czech government will not let in Russian and Belarusian players, of which there are many right. at the top of the women's tennis tour, get into the country. So yet just another wrinkle in, in, in this whole situation that's ongoing. It's all, it's all fascinating and always great to talk to you about it. Former professional tennis player Patrick McEnroe, thanks. Good to see you, sir. Hope you have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. He was one of Louisiana's only pediatric cardiologists in the entire state the silencing attempt that led him to leave Louisiana. That's next. In our health lead right now, there are LGBTQ parents in the United States trying to figure out how their kids can talk about their home lives at school because multiple states are considering or passing laws to ban any official instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation. Louisiana in the southern United States is one of those states. CNN met a family there who is concerned enough to leave. The problem with this family is one of the dads is a doctor with a desperately needed specialty, a medical specialty, that Louisianans need. CNN's Meg Terrell spoke to him about uprooting his family. Yeah, I mean, this is what we called it our um, wall of love. When Jake and Tom Kleinmahan moved back to New Orleans... The city where they met and fell in love. They planned to raise their two kids and retire here. We built this house, honestly, to live here forever. A pediatric cardiologist, Jake returned to be medical director of the pediatric heart transplant program at Oshner Health, the only program like it in Louisiana. What do you love about being here? I feel like I really make a difference here. And before I came, any complex patients were having to be sent out of state for mm-hmm. heart transplants. And I felt like the kids of Louisiana deserved to stay in Louisiana. He's back. But now Jake and his family are leaving the state after a set of bills passed the legislature this summer that they say make them feel unwelcome. The part that really solidified it for us was when we were watching the Senate Education Committee um, hear the, about the Don't Say Gay bill. HB 466 prohibits teacher-led discussions on sexual orientation or gender identity in grades K through 12. To think that if our kids went to public school and they were made fun of because they had two dads, a teacher would not have been able to step in and make a learning experience about different types of families. 
HB 466 and another bill which sought to require permission from parents for school employees to use certain names or pronouns for students were vetoed by Louisiana's governor in June. And a third bill, banning gender-affirming medical care for most minors, overcame the governor's veto and is expected to take effect in January. I'm really sad to leave, um, but I feel like I don't really have a choice. But the way that the political landscape in Louisiana is going, it's pretty clear that these laws are going to pass eventually. Jake's departure doesn't just mean there's one fewer specialist like him here in New Orleans. He says it leaves just two heart transplant cardiologists for kids for the whole state of Louisiana. There is going to be a hole that's left when I leave. How much is that weighing on you? By far the hardest part of this decision was thinking about my patients. The Klein-Mahans are moving to Long Island, New York, where Jake will start a heart transplant program. And the whole family will start a new life. We teach our children about kindness, about celebrating differences, and we hope that they recognize this as us doing something so that they can live in an area where they can be free, they can be kind, they can celebrate our differences, our different type of family. Meg Terrell, CNN, New Orleans. And our thanks to Meg Terrell for that piece. Coming up Sunday on State of the Union, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, fresh off her trip to China. Republican Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota as his party confronts questions about the health of Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, plus a revealing profile on Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. That is Sunday morning at 9 and again at noon, only on CNN. Coming up next in the Situation Room, 2024 Republican candidate Asa Hutchinson, his take on the now questionable leadership status of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.